Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Perhaps some of you recognize that famous opening from Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, which he wrote in in 1859, and it's still considered today one of the best and well-known novels of all times. A Tale of Two Cities tells the story, tells a story set with the backdrop of of, of two cities, one in England, one in France, uh, London and Paris. And it was describing these events in the, one of the most chaotic and uh, time of upheaval time periods within European history, all with the backdrop of the French Revolution. And so this tale of two cities is quite well known. Well, I thought about this particular novel and also that title. It came to mind as I was preparing for today's sermon, a sermon about the glorious event that took place on what we call the the Mount of Transfiguration. And the reason why I was thinking about that is because when we read about the Transfiguration, God is revealing to us a, a tale, not of two cities, but of two mountains. And not a tall tale either, or a piece of fiction, but a historical account of what happened with Jesus on two different mounts. And so we keep both of them in our minds as we listen to this account from Luke chapter 9. Now, one of the mountains that I'm obviously referring to is the mountain of transfiguration, where Jesus reveals his divine glory to those three disciples. And and although we don't know the exact location of where that took place, most people today think it was either Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon in Israel. But either way, this was the place, Luke tells us, where Jesus took Peter and James and John in order to pray. And while they were praying, Jesus was suddenly altered. His clothes become dazzling white. The radiance of his divine glory shone out, no longer restrained by his human body. And not only that, but two of the most important people from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, appear with Jesus. Moses, of course, being the great lawgiver, and Elijah the great prophet. Now the three disciples who were present should have been praying, but very similar to what happened later in the Garden of Gethsemane, they were instead found sleeping. And so they woke up to find all of this Happening, and, and they were still drowsy, it says, but, but they were being blinded by the glorious presence of Jesus. And then Peter finally gets enough of his wits about him to be able to say something. And so he blurts out, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But Luke adds that Peter said this not knowing what he said. You see, the point wasn't going to be so that they could dwell there indefinitely. Instead, the point was to focus on Jesus and to find out more of who he is. And that's why then this glorious cloud descends upon them, like the cloud from Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, which was the very presence of God himself, and it overshadowed them. And a voice spoke from the cloud and said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. 
And after that, Jesus then was alone, and they descended from the mountain, and the disciples told no one what had happened there until after Jesus rose from the dead. So this is the first mountain, the mountain of transfiguration. But you remember we said this was a tale of two mountains. And so we might wonder, well, what is the other one? Because we've only talked about one. Well, there is another mountain in our gospel reading today. And we find it in a significant detail that only Luke includes in his gospel. Because it's only Luke who records for us what Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking about that day as they were standing on the mountain. In verse 30, it says, And behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now we may ask, well, what departure is that referring to? Is that just a euphemism for Jesus' death or, or maybe his ascension later on? Well, not exactly. You see, those things are involved, but in order to better understand what Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking about that day, we need to recognize the fact that the word there in Greek, departure, it is actually literally exodus. It says exodus. Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, when we hear that word, when we hear the word exodus, probably a whole flood of images and meaning come into our minds. We think about the rich and powerful act of salvation that God accomplished on behalf of his people back when they were slaves in Egypt. God delivered them out of slavery and into the promised land. And this event, this act of salvation, was known as the Exodus, and it would define the Israelite people for their entire history. And this Exodus event did something more. It also was pointing forward to the time when the Lord's Messiah would arrive and perfectly deliver all people this time, the entire world, from their slavery. Not, not slavery to a human government or institution, but our slavery to sin and death and deliver us then into the promised land of eternal life. All this accomplished by the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So this then is what we find Jesus talking about with Moses and Elijah there on the mountain. You see, Jesus was standing there on the mountain of transfiguration, the mountain where his full and divine glory as the Son of God was visible for all present to see. But Jesus' eyes were focused intently on Jerusalem, the place where he knew he would climb that second mountain, Mount Calvary, and accomplish an even greater exodus on behalf of the whole world. And on that mountain in Jerusalem, the glory of his divine power and majesty would be hidden, and we would see the glory of his suffering and death instead, his sacrifice for the sins of every person. And that's why today 
On Transfiguration Sunday, this last Sunday before our season of Lent begins, we think about this tale of two mountains. We stand with Peter and James and John in awe of the transfigured glory of our Savior Jesus Christ on the mountain of transfiguration, the mountain that stands at the beginning of our season of Lent. But we also focus and follow Jesus' own gaze as he looks to the end of his journey when he will travel resolutely to the mountain of Calvary, the mountain that will conclude our season of Lent. These two mountains are like two bookends on either side of Lent, standing tall, and so we hold them side by side. And when we do, we see some interesting things. You see, here on the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus is revealed in glory. But there on the mount of Calvary, Jesus is revealed in shame. Here, Jesus' clothes are shining white, but there his clothes have been stripped off and gambled for by soldiers. Here, Jesus is flanked on either side by the great Moses and Elijah, the epitome of faithful servants from the Old Testament. But there, he is flanked by two criminals, the epitome of human sin and rebellion. Here on the Mount of Transfiguration, a bright cloud illuminates the scene. But there on Mount Calvary, darkness covers the whole land. Here, Peter shouts out how wonderful all this is and and that they should stay there for as long as they can. But there, Peter abandons Jesus and denies that he even knows him. And here, on this mountain, a voice from God declares that this is his chosen one. But there, on that second mountain, only a pagan Roman centurion declares in surprise that truly this was the Son of God. It's a tale of two mountains. One mountain shows us who Jesus truly is, the chosen Son of God, and the other one shows us that as the chosen Son of God, he was willing to do all for our sake. There was no limit to how he loved us. So what does this mean for us today? That we have these two mountains. And more importantly, what does it mean for us that we find Jesus on both of them? Well, as we think about ourselves and reflect on our own human nature, I think that we would admit that as human beings, especially fallen human beings, oftentimes we tend to seek out and want to stay in the moments of life that seem the most glorious when things are going well in life, when things look right and powerful and successful, we want to dream of power and success and glory. We want for ourselves good families and good health and a good job and a good life. So often we are like Peter. We want to set up our lives permanently in such a space. But what does it say about Jesus that he denies Peter's request? That not even the Son of God chose to stay 
on that mountain. Instead, Jesus traveled down that mountain of his power and glory and instead walked the road that was set before him, which he knew would lead to a different mountain of suffering and shame. And if this then is what Jesus does out of love for us, what is it that we should expect in our lives? You see, it's a human tendency to think that God wants us to find him in the amazing and transcendent experiences in this life. And that if God is truly present in my life, then it must mean that everything should be going well. And that that if the opposite of true, if things appear to be going wrong, if they look weak and powerless and shameful and full of suffering, well, then God must be absent from me. How many of us, when we experience pain or suffering or the death of those around us, we start to wonder, well, where is God in all of this? Why does he let these things happen? Again, I think it's our human inclination to think this way. But you see, what God thinks and what he shows us through Jesus is that Jesus, who is God himself, The one who truly had a rightful claim to all the success and all the power and all the glory. Jesus chose to release his claim on those things. And instead he chose to pursue what seemed weak and foolish in the eyes of the world. As he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not use his power to avoid pain or suffering or death because he knew that all of it was necessary for our sake and our salvation. This is what we call the theology of the cross, that God reveals to us that we don't get closer to him by seeking out only the powerful and glorious experiences in life. That is what we call instead a theology of glory, vain glory, false glory. And that's what the world loves and tries to tempt us with. False teachers will claim that God wants to bless you with all the money and fame and glory that you can possibly handle if only you have enough faith to believe. And if you don't have all those things in your life, well, then something must be wrong with your faith, or maybe you don't even have faith at all. But instead, the theology of the cross reminds us that the true road to God is the road that Jesus walked for our sake. A road that doesn't avoid the cross, but goes straight through it. And if we desire to be his disciples, if we desire to follow Jesus, then it involves us picking up our cross daily, as he said, and following him. This then is the paradox of what it means to live our lives in the shadow of the cross. That that God has not chosen for for us to find him in some transcendental out-of-body experience, but that God in a human body showed the greatness of his love for us in a very mundane, in-person, even shameful moment at Calvary. But through that moment, Jesus made it possible for us to be close to him. That Jesus paid the price for our sins 
and accomplish for us what we would never be able to accomplish on our own. He has given us eternal life, and we find him and the life that he gives in simple, ordinary means. His voice is heard in the reading of the word. His promises have been given to us and placed upon us in just ordinary water. And his body and blood are shared with us in bread and wine. Again, things that look weak and foolish to the world, but that we know are the very power to save. As Christians, we also know that true glory, not vain or false glory, but true glory is coming. It's not fully visible yet, but we will see it. We don't need to seek out that false glory that the world tries to offer us. We don't trust in things that the world promises us perfect health or perfect security or or perfect happiness. These things are not possible apart from Christ. Instead, we seek after the same glory that Jesus did. Glory of the eternal father as he revealed in the Mount of Transfiguration. But glory that Jesus used then to lay down his own life out of love as he revealed to us on the Mount of Calvary. And so glory in our lives looks like laying our lives down. Jesus said, let them see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. And so that's what we do. And because of what Jesus has done for us, we know that one day we will know the full and awesome glory of our Savior and and Lord when he returns again. It will be on that day when we ourselves will be raised and, and perfectly restored and our sins will be no more. We will have perfect and eternal life with Jesus. We look forward to that day. And in the meantime, We are thankful for all the moments and the days and the years when when we do have rich blessings from God, when God richly blesses us and allows us to enjoy things like health and success and, and happiness. When these things happen, they are wonderful gifts from God, and we are thankful to enjoy them. But our faith does not depend on those gifts. And what's more, even in those moments and days and years when those blessings are gone, when we may be experiencing suffering and sorrow and even death, we know that it doesn't mean that God is somehow far from us. In fact, it's just the opposite. When we suffer, God draws us even closer to himself. And we remember all that Christ suffered on our behalf so that we never have to know what it's like to be separated from God's love. And so today, this last Sunday of our Epiphany season, we do. We we prepare ourselves to journey another Lenten journey beginning this Wednesday. When we will join Jesus in walking down the mountain of transfiguration and begin our journey towards that next mountain in Jerusalem. The mountain where on Good Friday we see our Savior give himself up for us. Now, I've heard some people maybe complain a little bit about Lent, that it's too depressing, or or why can't we just stay more upbeat? Well, the simple answer is this, that that's unrealistic. None of us can be happy all the time. That's not accurate to our lives. But it's also less than helpful, 
There's certainly a time and place for our joyful rejoicing, like, like what we're looking forward to come Easter, but, but also what could be more appropriate and more spiritually nourishing to take some time out of our church year to walk down that mountain with our Savior and journey with him so that we may better prepare ourselves for the joy that we know is coming. And actually, what we find is that Lent reflects our whole lives here on earth. That in our lives here on earth, we are on a journey which at times may be dark and difficult. We may find ourselves not always happy and upbeat, but sometimes feeling torn, like between two mountains. But because of the cross of our Savior Jesus Christ and his glorious resurrection on the third day, we know that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Our own resurrected lives and the joy that we will have when we live with him forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.